0: Section thirty eight of Paved with Gold. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Judy Mason Paved with Gold by Augustus Mayhew. Chapter five of Book the Third: The Road to Ruin. Stonehenge ned leaned heavily on his crutch and grumbled loudly at the speed of his companions as they wound down a steep hill from which a bank of fine grass soft and short as velvet shelved on one side while on the other palings stood primly up shoulder to shoulder like a crack regiment sturdily protecting the sacred plumage of game within here and there billy paused to examine with his stick a hole in the fence and speculate on the possibility of finding a rabbit in a snare but his vigilance was not rewarded even with a mole's skin come along billy no snailing shouted ned who poor tortoise as he was had by his persevering hobbling got ahead of his companions come on you'll find nothing in them holes here's phil eatin toadstools that'll be a pretty go to-morrow and they ain't not ne'er a hatband among us here phil spitting out the skin of a mushroom joined his growl to ned's in the hopes of urging on the stubborn billy it was like coaxing a terrier out of a rat ditch this tearing away of master fortune from these hare runs come along! here's the pike shouted phil and they said the town was close to it. Come away, Billy, or I'm jiggered if I don't tow and heel it when three chaps are in the same swim, they ought to be accommodating. These forcible remonstrances had their due effect, and the three young vagabonds, mending their pace, shuffled onwards, having said something saucy to the old doll who was minding the turnpike and eyed them as they passed through they turned to the left and saw the outskirts of droodshurst before them although the town was so small that to say it had outskirts seemed as absurd as to say that a ballet-dancer has petticoats the cows were chewing the cud the tips of their horns and the warm colour of their hides lighted by the setting sun near the banks of the river that sparkled like a smile among the meadows a tired angler was winding up his tackle whilst the boys stopped to witness this operation three or four labourers with spades and forks on their shoulders passed and turned to look at the strangers rather too curiously to please billy who with his head on one side stared back again as impudently as he could they looked tired poor chaps said phil they can hardly lift their feet more fools they responded billy got blisters on their hands i'll warrant the duffers and all for a bob a day that's worse than soldiers wages why we shall get more in an hour if we've any luck i'll tell you what they've got though that we haven't added phil they've got a home to go to and a wife to say welcome and a good bed to rest on i think as far as we're concerned they've the best of it at times phil was subject to these fits of melancholy they attacked him whenever he had overwalked himself but dr billy fortune was at hand to prescribe for the patient he administered stimulating jibes and taunts and soon restored phil to what he considered a healthy condition of scoundrelism Listen to the preacher, he said to Ned Purchase. What a rattling soul driver he'd have made, wouldn't he? Give him a spouting box and black togs, and he'd send such chaps as you and me, Ned, singing psalms before a week was gone. Wasn't it moving, that idea of his, about the wife and home? He ought to have stuck in a few squeakers climbing up Dad's knee whilst he's gorging his cat lap and panem. To show that he sided with Billy, the lame boy hopped into a puddle and sent the water splashing over Phil, perhaps in the hopes of putting out this spark of virtue. I hate a snivelling, water-headed chap, said Ned. Just stow it till we're working the town, and let the women have it for their pence. The town of Droodshurst had an amiable look, the parsonage house cloaked with fat-leaved ivy, the doctor's house from the door of which the brass knocker glistened as if it would burn the fingers of any one who raised it the round ruddy yellow-haired children trotting about the road the candles flickering from the darkness of the cottage parlours the merry songs heavily charged with local r's that swell from under the vermilion paws of the red lion all seemed amiable and sinking happily to the coming night's rest here some labourers were piling spades and rakes in a tool-house there a cottager with his shoulder planted against his door was sending grey wreaths of smoke into the air to get gilt edges from the sunset and sometimes the shrill voice of a woman broke the silence as she called her little ones from a neighbour's doorstep to bed this looks queer said ned as he hobbled heavily along not much to be nabbed here they'd offer you blessings and a farthing not a house good for a cold tater that i can see continued billy fortune sullenly it's the prettiest place we pass passed through said phil presently a turn in the street it was a compromise between a street and a high road brought them into a broad thoroughfare but the houses were low and the sagacious eye of billy fortune saw that at a glance there was little hope of picking up anything if they whined and moaned at every door in the row it's the beastliest crib i ever come in growled ned confound it ain't there any knobs about no slap-up gentry nor nothing of that kind it's a queer look-out a regular bog-trotter's nest i wish we'd gone to salisbury we should have done benny there let's have a try at that old gal said billy pointing to an elderly woman taking the air on her doorstep she looks nervous and old and if we say something about giving to the poor being the short cut to heaven perhaps she'll tip something through the funk phil and ned paused in the middle of the road while billy advanced toward a cottage upon which the whitewash appeared fresher than that upon the habitations round about over the door was a long plank announcing to the passing antiquarian the existence of a museum within as he didn't understand what a museum meant billy was in doubt whether it was the name of a public-house or of some charitable institution if he had looked at the little window he would have observed several pamphlets exposed for sale in which the history and wonders of stonehenge were fully related and described by charles lortz of druidshurst Poor carpenter out of work please marm whined billy fortune and would be very grateful for a trifle the person addressed shifted her position several times to try to avoid the beggar but as he still remained she at length said in a shrill voice you carpenters are always out of work there were two last week why don't you beg of carpenters that are in work instead of me I'm not a carpenter boy. I'm afraid you're idle. And remember this boy, it's the root of all evil. I know that too well, mum, sighed Billy. And many's the time my mother's used them very words. But it ain't idleness I'm suffering from, but hard times and hard masters and the uncommon price of wood. Deal's gone up frightful, mum. The pals were watching Billy with all their eyes he pitches it into her most uncommon powerful observed ned but she seems close and stubborn and perfect fireproof it was to the sister of mr charles lortz that billy fortune was appealing though apparently not more than forty years of age she wore spectacles with an exemplary daring which proved that if her eyes were weak her mind was strong her nose was what is termed retrousse that term however but ill expressed the curious upturning of this singular feature it curled as if it had become dog's-eared it seemed to have quarrelled with the mouth and to be attempting a separation for life thereby greatly inconveniencing the nostrils which were tightened to whiteness and uncomfortably twisted her spectacles rode on this nose as securely as an arab in his high pommelled saddle and could as easily have tumbled off a hook as slipped from their place her eyes had a set expression of surprise aroused evidently by a chronic admiration of her nasal organ very often did miss lortz in her permanent falsetto assure billy that she had nothing to give him he still remained a sudden idea crossed the lady's brain she wouldn't part with a penny because it was wrong to encourage beggars but she might without fear of any transgression endeavour to improve his mind she would show him the museum for nothing come in young man she said leading the way i'll see what i can do for you and i was going to give it up as a bad job thought bill he had only to cross the threshold to enter the museum the front parlor had been set aside for scientific purposes. Wafered up against the walls and covering them as completely as if they had been the eccentric pattern of the paper, were plans of Stonehenge, pictures cut from illustrated papers, and colored charts of scriptural revelations. With an air of disgust, Billy looked about him, first at the walls and then at the woman. An idea crossed his mind that she was mad, and being at heart a coward, he grew frightened and watched anxiously for an opportunity to be off. But she was not mad, she was only a weak-minded, enthusiastic creature with vanity enough for six women of her size. In the village, she was considered a prodigy of learning. The rising generation of Druidshurst were entrusted to her care, and every form in her infant schoolroom was crowded. As he stood in the museum, Billy could hear the little voices repeating their lessons, the twittering sounds forming a curious accompaniment to the solemn tone in which Miss Lortz, who, when inspired, always became gruff, began her lecture. She advanced to a table on which a pile of something was covered by an oilcloth. With her eyes fixed on Billy, she said, I am about, young man, to show you some pre-adamite formations he felt inclined to reply, Please don't, for fear was upon him. The slightest question on the part of Miss Lortz would have sent him flying for safety into the road. The oilcloth covered a heap of twisted, gnarled flint stones. The vagrant felt relieved when he saw them. The poor lady had, in her admiration for Stonehenge, framed a theory that it was built up by no less a person than Adam himself as an atonement for his great sin. She had written a book on the subject and perfectly proved the matter, but lest the vulgar should doubt her assertions, she had collected on the plain in the neighbourhood of the Druid's temple a vast number of curiously shaped flint stones, which from their bearing some rude resemblance to the forms of birds or the limbs of animals, she now exhibited in her museum as petrifactions of pre-atomite formations i dare say young man she sternly asked billy you wonder what all these mean well marm replied billy nervously i should call it about a barrow load of stones what painful ignorance exclaimed the savant they're fossils and the finest you ever saw well, they're very good ones said billy though he felt convinced he had seen larger ones on the mounds for mending the roads. "'That,' said Miss Lortz, pointing to a misshapen flint, "'we take to be the thigh-bone of a child. "'And that,' pointing to a round stone, "'is the head, as I and learned folk judge.' He couldn't help laughing. With a broad grin, he answered, "'If that's the head and thigh, I know where you may find the other bits of the body.' Well, this is a start. If I had seen him in the road, I should have pitched em over the hedge. The world is still in darkness, exclaimed Miss Lortz. Pitch a fossil over a hedge. If these was children, continued Billy, I'm glad the breed is so very much improved. I should say, Mum, their parents must have been a queer sort. He saw Miss Lortz was harmless and was growing saucy young man replied the lady impressively you are not prepared for these revelations you would no doubt deny that this is a fossil bird and this a human hand she drew out a drawer and taking a clean pamphlet from it said read this young man and when you thoroughly understand it and are impressed with its truth come to me you may go billy took the book turned it over but kept his temper it was a copy of lortz on stonehenge can't you give us a bit of bread to wrap in it there's not a morsel in the house young man so don't ask i've my pupils to send home so good-night billy saw there was nothing to be had he glanced into the schoolroom beyond the museum where rows of pinaforeed children were whispering and giggling then, as he turned back into the road, he said, "'Well, you've sold me most complete, old bobtail. I axed you for bread, and you shove a lump of flint into my hand? Here, take back this fakement.' He flung Lortz on Stonehenge on the floor. "'If I'd known this was your little game, I'd have smashed the cussed head of that there stone child of yourn. If you could add your heart to the heap of flints, I should say the collection would be fussed-rate.' he found his pals at the corner of the road examining the lock-up house it was not much larger than a london pork pie and they did not seem afraid of it they could tell from billy's face that he had brought nothing back with him i never see such a woman said billy as they stared inquiringly at him jawed me for half an hour then asked me to read a cussed fakement they remained leaning against the lock-up house discussing what had best be done they had but little money and were hungry and tired they would have liked a bed and supper if druidshurst had owed a padding-can for travellers but at the white Hart and the blue pig beds cost more than threepence a night and every supper served up came to a shilling and something for the waiter it was unfortunate for them this discussion took so long for it happened that miss lortz to be revenged on billy for his impertinence had dispatched one of her scholars to the constable informing him that three suspicious vagabonds were loitering about the town delighted at an opportunity of exerting his authority the official clapped on his hat and hurried towards our young rogues the moment billy fortune saw the constable he knew from his angry expression and pompous walk he was somebody in power the first suggestion was that they should slope and give the trap the slip but phil indignantly replied that they had done nothing and insisted upon standing his ground they were threatened with the lock-up house if they didn't instantly leave the place it was in vain they pleaded they were tired and hungry and wanted a night's lodging the man in power would not listen to them but told them to move on a request they eventually complied with but not before the constable had been well soused with abuse indeed that night he told the company at the blue pig that if he had had anybody to help him he would have nailed the varmints as sure as eggs was eggs confound you ned purchase had said to him why it's me as pays you whilst phil in his indignation had demanded to be taken before a magistrate and billy had threatened not only to write to the public journals but also to complain to the secretary of state threats which the official seemed to despise as if he had been aware that master fortune had forgotten all about his pot-hooks and hangers they moved on slowly by the same road they had come the cripple complaining that the crutch was wearing his arm off, and that his poor leg ached, whilst Phil growled lustily at Billy, murmuring that he had led them out of their way, and that now they must either sleep with empty stomachs in the ditch, or trudge ten miles further to the nearest town. In so painful a predicament, Billy's width became unusually quickened i'll tell you what we'll do he said there's no chance of nabbing any rust taking any money so we must make up our minds to sleep on the daisies it's as hot as ten blankets i know a place not far from here where we shall be as jolly as birds in a thatch where asked both ned and phil incredulously why at that there's stonehenge to be sure responded billy triumphantly there's stones there as big as houses and corners where the wind can't come it's only a mile or so off well retorted ned sarcastically having found such a particular soft bed where's the scran leave that to me was billy's mysterious reply if there's a goose or a hen within ten miles of us i'll wring his neck or be grabbed are you fond of birds but Ned was not altogether satisfied with his pal's assurance, and as he turned with his companions down the road to Stonehenge, muttered and growled. Growlin' again, said Billy Fortune. Come out with it. What's your lay? But no yelping. "Ah, oh, I wish you'd only one leg. You'd yelp then, was Ned's evasive answer. The moon winked as she rose above a distant slope, and the wind sang sadly among the trees or boomed like distant cannon over the vast plain of salisbury to which these young urchins were advancing the shadows from the waving trees played along the pallid moonlit road a very mystic game the boys although they would not confess it didn't half like the look-out before them for the trees decreased in size and appeared in the distance only at wide intervals. More, they would take such unpleasant shapes. Now an abrupt scrap of hedge rose like a file of ghostly policemen, and now a willow, its silver underleaf turned to the moon by the wind, bowed to and fro, a white nodding spectre. Billy Fortune started and caught Ned's arm don't be a fool you're tugging me over it's only a tree replied the latter young gentleman graciously it's only a tree of course jerked out phil too as he regained his breath so it is said ned and here my hearties to show you that i ain't such a funky cove i leave you and billy fortune twirling his stick knowingly leaned against the gate from which a path that to judge by its curves must have been trodden out by an incessant file of drunken men led along the jagged outskirts of a wood but asked ned what games up keep your teeth didn't i promise you supper now sharp and cut on to Stonehenge. pick up any old wood you see scrape something like a fire together i'll be with you in less than no time but no whistling keep them bagpipes of urine quiet just for an interval having given these directions billy fortune stole along the zigzag path his silent footsteps would not have scared a hair from his way ned and phil having mutually agreed that their pal was a born genius only spoiled in the baking turned from the gate behind which the young desperado had disappeared and went on their way the wind swept in gusts past them, and as they left the shelter of the last hedge behind them, forced them to bow their heads and pull their caps firmly down. A broad, vast, and gloomy expanse, unrelieved by tree or bush, lay in front, seemingly mysterious in extent, as if a fog surrounded them. Here and there were mounds standing up, as Phil said, like warts, the road dipped into a valley, then gently rose. Along the dark edges of the plain, here and there, lights of solitary cottages shone like glow-worms. The wind appeared to have the dark green broken plain to itself, and to shriek over it and moan over it, as though it knew its ancient story and was mourning for the fallen temple of the Druids and the forgotten dust of ancient Britons buried deep under the tumuli. The moon, too, was provokingly playful. Now she hid her face behind a floating vapour, light and white as fretted silver. Now she played hide-and-seek with a cloud of ebony blackness, which she fringed with white, making it look like a dead baby's pall. Then lavish of her silver she spread it upon the tops of the tumuli dropped it magically about the edges of a milestone turned the flints of the broken roads into so many nuggets and now she tipped with milky light a dark confused mass that stood up like titans mourning upon a rise on phil's left were the sighing and the moaning of the wind the great voices of these mourners ned and phil kept close together i suppose that stonehenge there said phil softly to his cripple friend there on top of the hill it don't look too comfortable one of billy's games again there's an airy bedstead for you with ghosts for blankets and lizards i know for bedfellows both the boys began to jeer and laugh at the distant ruins as children in their impudent health and thoughtlessness will mock at helpless age. So these lads scoffed at the Druid's temple. They called it a seedy graveyard. One said he had seen better flagstones, and the other replied that the sooner the granite served to mend the roads, the better. But the huge monument soon avenged itself and punished its insulters the wind that had torn up trees and shaken houses had vainly raged around these massive columns and rushed against their broadsides howling and shrieking as it tried to hurl them to the ground the tempests of centuries had pelted them with rain until the granite was scarred and wrinkled with hard wear and tear and still one-half the granite blocks remained firm and upright as ever their companion pillars lying about them like slain giants. They soon avenged themselves upon the two puny vagrant boys. The lads, to make a short cut to the ruins, had left the high road and were walking across the soft grass of the plain. Their footsteps fell soundless as upon a cushion. The silence of the night became oppressive a tinkling rustling sound filled the ear a sound that seemed to come from within themselves they longed to be able to shuffle their feet along the road and hear the pebbles crunch under their heels when they spoke to each other they still kept their eyes fixed upon the ruins before them and gradually their questions and answers became shorter and less frequent with each step the monster stones increased in size rising from the ground as if issuing from it to welcome the young tramps at last they appeared to hang over their heads as though they would overwhelm them both the boys felt afraid and thought inwardly how much better it would have been had they crept into some dry ditch to pass the night instead of sleeping beside these stone monsters with the black shadows stretching across their bodies well might they feel alarmed such wonders as the giant stones on the salisbury plain should be visited only in the daytime when sunshine drives from the mind all ghostly imaginings then how different do the monster blocks appear the picnic parties who resort thither laugh and philosophise by turns as they gaze upon the ruins and whilst the hampers are being unpacked wonder how such big stones could have been carried there as each bottle is emptied the useless glass may without an afterthought be flung against the massive pillars then greaves from kent and a thousand others may scratch their names on the walls of the ancient temple and spoil their penknives that they may leave behind an evidence of their callousness or hooper of manchester and many more lying at full length upon the grass cut out their names in the smooth turf and record their folly in the kindred dirt but would they do you think find courage for such silly profanation in the dead of night with the huge blocks frowning down upon them through the darkness they would creep by reverently as through a churchyard nor dare attempt such violation lest the spirits of the druid priests who sacrificed in that very temple should punish the insult the two tramps walked into the precincts of the ruins and stood in the centre gazing around the stones arranged in circles enclosed a plot of ground in which the tent of a travelling circus might have been erected with ease at first sight the boys could hardly comprehend the meaning of these stones and the mystery awed them some of the blocks gnarled and moss-covered had fallen from the perpendicular and sunk into the earth as a drunken man falls into the snow about and around these downcast monuments grew a fringe of tall grass and nettles others still retained the position in which more than eighteen hundred years ago they had been placed by the hands of men and stood lofty and massive as the entrance to an egyptian tomb each block had the marks and signs of great age upon it the edges were worn and rounded as thawing ice and in some places had fallen in like the sunken features of an old man the druid's temple is a wonderful chapter of the accidents of time on one side the upright rocks still carry they're apparently ready to drop it at any minute their enormous mass of horizontal granite one pair of pillars appear to be balancing a rock as an acrobat balances a pole it is difficult to imagine how the rock keeps its position phil and ned looked on so nervously at this conjuring of time that they determined to give the wonder a very wide berth why shouldn't the great stone fall that night as well as any other was phil's philosophic suggestion it must tumble down some time or other added ned afterwards at salisbury the boys were told that one hundred years ago two of the pillars actually did fall casting the horizontal rock from their shoulders the fall too made the noise of a park of artillery and shook the earth like an earthquake Without knowing it, the boys had seated themselves upon these identical fallen columns, rested their feet upon the enormous burden that, after untold centuries of patience, the columns had cast from them, and then lain themselves deep down in the earth to rest and crumble. There they were, with the grey lichen creeping over them and wearing holes upon their rugged surface, freckled with the hardy growth which damp extracts from stone close to these fallen giants was the leaning stone a slanted coffin-shaped block that seemed ready to fall upon any human being or any score of human beings who might be bold enough to venture under its shelter resting against a post in front it looked to the lads like the inclined brick of a giant bird-trap set to catch innocent youths such as themselves other huge blocks lay here and there in wild confusion some massive as roman baths others seamed and wrinkled others again had deep hollows into which a dog might have crept others lay buried in the earth year after year sinking lower and lower into their grave the boys these thoughtless daring young tramps felt uneasy in this grand circus every brick of which was a ruin in itself the moon shone upon their pale serious faces as they gazed from the sanctum where sacrifice was once offered and the deep voices of the druids were heard upon the awful confusion the moon had been provoking to Phil and Ned on the road and the ghastly way in which she now threw her white light like linen sheets upon the great stones or let it play wickedly through chinks and in the depth of the awful shadows frighten them more than they cared to confess phil was the first to cast away his fear and he did it by opening a game of leap-frog in which poor ned could not join him over the smaller stones while his companion faintly laughed at him and then the young fellows determined to light their fire in a snug corner close to the leaning stone or the coffin lid as ned called it they were afraid billy would be back before they had gathered even a few sticks so they began to grope around the grass taking care not to stray far from each other they soon discovered they were not the only tramps who had taken shelter under the stones of the old druid's place of worship for here and there the grass was burnt by the campfires into a round black patch. Ned was the first to call out that he had found something. Here's a lot of paper. It's greasy and smells of am. Here's corks and an empty bottle. Shall I bring them? Grab all you can find, was Pills' prudent suggestion. Presently, he added, They've been eating here today. Here's a heap of straw in an old basket. By and by, Ned gave a low whistle and, on Phil creeping up to him, pointed to the road and asked, What's that? Phil looked out beyond the stones. Somebody with a light, coming along at a rattling pace. He can't be after Billy, suggested Ned, but he's such a desperate cove. As he said this he looked searchingly towards the horizon where the wood lay like a bushy black head upon the rotund bosom of the earth a light was travelling rapidly along the road towards them and the distant burr of wheels reached the lad's ears after a few minutes of perfect silence and anxious watching ned exclaimed ah, it's only a confounded gig and turned his attention once more to gathering fuel for the fire they were both so nervous and timid that the least noise alarmed them. A dog barked in the distance, and Ned called out, "'Do you hear that howling, Phil?' Phil had heard it and was listening attentively. "'It ain't Billy's voice?' he suggested. After a moment, the lame boy dispelled all fears for fortune's safety by saying, "'All right, it's only a sheep dog. I hear the sheep bell.' but it did give a chap a twist i can tell you and then marking that it was as cold as a lock-up he proposed they should instantly prepare their fire the boys returned to the leaning stone and crouching into a corner sheltered by the granite blocks lighted a fire soon the dry sticks were fairly crackling and the smoke rose like a white scarf in the moonlight the light and heat of the fire were both cheering, for the wind began to moan very sadly, and the white slips of moonlight between the great columns of the temple shifted and looked unearthly. The stones themselves took queer shapes as the flame of the burning wood illumined their edges. One seemed to resemble a large toad, another appeared like a kneeling figure. The quiet of their fireside was destined to be disturbed. No doubt the cripple was more nervous than Phil, for he was continually hearing suspicious noises. This time he declared, There was a rum row, like muffled drums a long way off. I don't like the look of this here, he added. I wish Billy was come and we'd be off. This was apparently Phil's wish also, for he crawled from under the leaning stone and climbed upon a block that commanded a view of the plain he stretched out his neck and stared in every direction till his eyes ached then urged on by ned he summoned up courage to break the dead silence of night and putting his hands to his mouth sent forth a shout that echoed among the ruins and was carried by the wind across the gloomy waste the sheep-dogs round about were the only living things that answered to the cry End of section 38.